the gospel. You can turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The Lord Jesus Christ, our mediatorial king, has left us with two ordinances or sacraments in the New Testament church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And these two he has blessedly given us as a reflection upon his doing, his dying, his rising again, as a reflection upon gospel perfections. And the one that 1 Corinthians 11 deals with is the Lord's Supper. And this morning we want to look at our joyful responsibility to observe the Lord's Supper. It is a Christian joy, it is a Christian responsibility, and yet not a responsibility that is a weariness to us, but a joyful responsibility to gather together as the saints of Christ for a reflection upon that blessed Christ. So this is 1 Corinthians 11, beginning at verse 17. Our, our focus will be, though, on some of the words of institution, specifically in 24 and 25, those being, do this in remembrance of me. So 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17, this is the word of God. Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes." Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged." But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment, and the rest I will set in order when I come. Amen. Well, let's ask the Lord's blessing upon uh, this act of worship. Let's go to our God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray that you'd be with us now. Help us as we reflect upon Holy Scripture. Help us as we engage in this act of worship, this central act of worship, the preaching of your word. We pray that you would help us by your spirit, uh, that both preacher and hearer would be the, the blessed yet undeserved recipients of the spirit's power. Help us to be focused. Help us to be aligned to your word. 
Help us to gain much by a reflection upon Jesus Christ and him crucified. And we pray in his precious name. Amen. Well, it's a, it's a curious thing that very often the very things ordained by God for our good, the very things ordained by God for the good of the Christian, uh, are those things that are often neglected by the Christian. Uh, prayer, uh, church attendance, the preaching of the word of God, uh, singing, the singing of hymns, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. In fact, I, I would say that perhaps that latter one is very often with respect to the corporate gathering of the body of Christ, that last one, the Lord's Supper, is very often neglected, and if not neglected, counted a small thing. And so we want to look at the Lord's Supper in reflecting upon the fact that it is our joyful responsibility as Christians to observe it. And we want to look at this under four headings. First, that uh, first, its character as a divine command. We see, and specifically the verses we're going to look at is do this in remembrance of me, though not to the exclusion of considering some of the context. So its character as a divine command, its character as a remembrance, as the text says here, its character as a remembrance of Christ, and then fourthly, its character as a means of grace for the Christian. Now before we get there, it's a very interesting thing. Notice as we began the reading of the section starting in verse 23. Notice verse 23, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. There, there's a significant thing here with regards to the institution of the Lord's Supper um, and its institution on the very night in which Christ was betrayed. What better timing, though, you know, it is a grievous timing because the Lord of glory was about to be crucified. But with our Christian minds reflecting back upon the institution of the Lord's Supper, what perfect timing on the part of Christ to institute a supper which would be a remembrance of his death on the very eve of his death. Now, he could have instituted it months before, weeks before, in anticipation of his death, but on the very eve of his death, he institutes a remembrance of himself uh, um, for that act that he would go through his oblation on the very subsequent day. This is Calvin on this significance. The circumstance as to time instructs us to the design of the sacrament, that the benefit of Christ's death may be ratified in us. For the Lord might have some time previously committed to the apostles this covenant seal, but he waited until the time of his oblation, that is, his sacrificial death. But he waited until the time of his oblation that the apostles might see soon after accomplished in reality in his body what he had represented to them in the bread and the wine. So it's wonderful timing on the part of the Lord to institute this observance of the remembrance of his death uh, on the very eve of his death. And we, we ought to note also that the Lord's Supper is replete with gospel. This is just by way of introduction, but notice the language of Christ that Paul is rehearsing here, verse 24 to 25. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So the Lord's Supper is replete with gospel. It's all about Christ's body broken for us and Christ's blood shed for us. And so as we'll see later on with regards to our Christian responsibility to observe it, it is a wonderful thing to observe and a joyful thing to observe because the Lord's Supper is replete with gospel. That means it is full of the gospel. It proclaims to us the gospel. In fact, that's the language of verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. It is at the same time a reflection upon the doing and the dying and the rising again of the Son of God, but it is also a proclamation of that self-same gospel of glory unto the end of the age. So let's look at the joyful responsibility to observe the Lord's Supper first uh, in its character as a divine command. And the text, remember, is twofold, in fact, because it's a repetition of language. Do this in remembrance of me. So where here do we find its character as a divine command? Simply in the language, do this. There, there is a command given by Christ. There's a command given by Christ that is rehearsed here by the Apostle Paul. And that command is to observe the Lord's Supper in the language, do this. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, Christianity is not a do-this religion. Uh, in, in fact, one of the things that sets Christianity apart from every other religion is that very thing, that it is not primarily, it is not in substance a do-this religion. It is a redemptive religion. The Lord Jesus Christ came into this world because we could not do this. He is the one who did. In fact, the only do-this that is efficacious, is the doing of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only one who did. He is the only one. He is the one to whom we look in his doing, in his subsequent dying, which is still a doing, and in his rising again. However, as it is a redemptive religion, and as we are brought from death to life, not by our own doing, but by the doing and dying and rising again of Christ through amazing and victorious grace and the gift of faith. Um, as we are brought to, from death to life by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, by the power of the triune God, having been saved by, by amazing grace, what then do we do? We, we look to the law, we look to the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, and from that vantage point, we live in a manner consistent with our high calling by grace. And it's not a, it's not a drudgery. It's not, it, it's not a, a high taskmaster enslaving us to obey his will, uh, and we just begrudgingly walk about that journey of obedience uh, as if we're, we're children who have just been asked to take out the garbage. You know, we, we, can see, we can see that in our human condition. Very often when someone tells us to do something, we, we, we do it, you know, with a slouched back, with a begrudging attitude because of, our, because of our native depravity or our remaining corruption. But you see, as Christians, when we're called to do things, again, not in order to merit salvation, but having been saved in order to serve our blessed God, we're to do it with great joy and we're to do it with great celebration. In fact, this is Gill on this particular language of, of doing the commandments of God. They are good and amiable, 
and lovely in their own nature and are cheerfully complied with. An abundance of spiritual pleasure and delight is enjoyed in them by believers when they have the presence of God, the assistance of his spirit, and the discoveries of his love. You see, these commandments that we have given by the triune God for our good and for his glory and as a light unto those Gentiles around us, they're good, they're amiable, and they're complied with, as he says here, not in a manner that is begrudging, not as if we are to just wearily go through the actions, but abundance of spiritual pleasure and delight is enjoined in them uh, enjoyed in them by believers. They're complied with with a joyful obedience. And so this divine command, do this, anticipates or expects that the Christians, that Christians will rejoice in the doing of the commands of God, having been saved by amazing and victorious grace. Gill goes on to say, moreover, the commands of Christ, in our view, do this in remembrance of me, the commands of Christ and the ordinances of the gospel are so in comparison of the law of Moses, which required perfect, uh, uh, which are which required sorry perfect obedience, but gave no strength to perform, and threatened with condemnation and death in case of the least failure, and of all the numerous and some very severe rites and usages of ceremonial law, and of the bulky and heavy traditions of elders and ordinances of men. So there you see the distinction. You see the distinction between these commandments which bring death and failure, but these commandments from a regenerate heart that we enjoy as Christians to be done um, by discoveries of his love. And so we're commanded to do this. We're commanded to do something, again, not in order to merit salvation, but having been saved, and having been saved now, to reflect with great joy upon the dying of the Lord Jesus Christ, we do so with cheerful hearts. And this is to come to us as Christians who can very often uh, count it a small thing to, to, to uh, attend or participate in the Lord's Supper. This is to come to us as Christians who can maybe very, very often take it upon ourselves to absent ourselves from the Lord's Supper because we do count it a small or occasional thing. And this is Hansard Nollis, uh, however you pronounce it, Nollis, Nollis, perhaps Mike can tell me afterwards, having availed of uh, Renahan for many years. This is, this is Hansard on the Lord's Supper and the saints' participation in it. The saints, when they sup with Christ, have meat and drink, which others know not of. Those believers who slight or neglect any of the holy administrations and ordinances of God do want, that is, they are found in wanting of, that fellowship with the Father and that communion with Jesus Christ in the Spirit, which, others, which other believers do enjoy. O oh, dear friends, be not wanting to your precious souls, either in slighting or neglecting the ordinances of God, why should you cry, O oh, my leanness and my barrenness? How unkindly do ye deal with Christ to slight and neglect or refuse the gracious invitations to heavenly banquets at his table? This is to come as for, for all of us, including myself, uh, for, for any of us who have perhaps 
whether now or in our history as Christians, counted it a light thing to gather for the Lord's Supper, this is to, uh, to come to us and to uh, rekindle a fire in our hearts to lay hold of the remembrance of Jesus. Notice this language that he gives here. Um, oh, dear friends, be not wanting to your precious souls, either in slighting or neglecting the ordinances of God. Now notice, why should you cry, oh, my leanness, my barrenness? What does that mean? It's as if he's picturing, or he's probably, he probably had endured it as a minister of the gospel to the saints of Christ. He, he had endured people coming to him and saying, Pastor, I, I'm just, I feel weak. I feel my leanness. I feel a barrenness in, in my walk with Christ. And the question from the observant pastor would come, well, when was the last time you attended the Lord's Supper? Why would you cry, oh, my leanness and oh, my barrenness, when you absent yourselves, when you absent yourself from a very remembrance of Christ, which is not only a remembrance, but is an occasion whereby the triune God, where Christ ascended from on high, by his, or to on high, by his spirit, feeds your souls. It's the same thing as, as absenting ourselves from the gathering of the church, uh, absenting ourselves from church attendance. Why would you cry, oh, my spiritual barrenness, and I'm just struggling as a Christian? Well, some questions would come upon the heels of that. Are you praying? Are you attending the means of grace? Are you availing of those things that God has given for the good of your soul? And so this command by the Lord Jesus Christ, rehearsed by the Apostle Paul, do this. It's a, it's a wonderful command to be, to be received by joy-filled Christians who have that that, that bounce in their step by virtue of the saving mercies of God. As Jesus Christ has brought us from deadness to life, we are to do those things he calls us to with a joyful and a cheerful heart. Now, secondly, we, we see the joyful responsibility to observe the Lord's Supper in its character as a remembrance. Its character as a remembrance, do this in remembrance of me. And remembrance should just be the, the natural motion of the Christian heart. In fact, it is the, the first motions of the Christian heart after we're brought forth from deadness to life to reflect, to engage in remembrance. In fact, as God is, is working upon our hearts by amazing grace, as God is pricking our consciences by his spirit and making us alive in Christ Jesus, one of those first motions is a recollection of our former selves, a recollection of our current and former selves. Spurgeon uses the language of, uh, of uh, perusing the diaries of our memories because there the witnesses of our guilt have faithfully recorded their names. We reflect upon sin. We remember our own sin, but in those saving mercies and in that that moment, or perhaps you can't capture the exact moment, but you know that there was a moment where you were brought from deadness to life, from darkness to light, you quickly fly from reflections and remembrances of your sin to reflections and remembrances upon the glories of Jesus Christ, who came into this world to save us from our sins. What a blessed thing it is to engage in those natural motions of the Christian heart which are found in 
remembrance. We can think of things like Psalm 97, 12, rejoice in the Lord, you righteous, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holy name. In fact, turn to a, a, a psalm with me, Psalm 107. And, and I would like to say, as you're turning there, when we get to Psalm 107, there is a, there's an intimate connection to this psalm, at least the first nine verses that we'll read, and the Lord's Supper. Notice Psalm 107, beginning at verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the enemy. Now just stop there for a moment. This, this language captures not only remembrance, but, but proclamation. Uh, you know, it, it probably captures temple worship, but what does it capture with respect to the Christian? We reflect upon the mercy of the Lord. We give thanks to him. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. There is something on the part of the Christian where we reflect upon the glories of God and his works and we proclaim those selfsame things. Whom he has redeemed from the hand of the enemy, verse 2, and gathered out of the lands from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south, they wandered in, a des uh, in the wilderness in a desolate way. They found no city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted in them. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them out of their distresses, and he led them forth by the right way, that they might go to a city for a dwelling place. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men, for he satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness. That, that last verse there, verse 9, captures the essence of the divine to the Christian in the, in the reality of the Lord's Supper. He satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness. What a blessing we have in the reflection and in the remembrance we have upon the works of God. And the Psalms very often capture this theme throughout. It's been called historical retrospect, a looking back upon the mercies of God in the lives of God's people. And hopefully all of us here this morning, at least the good measure of us, all of us here who are Christians saved by grace through faith in Christ, um, we can engage in that historical retrospect, can't we? We can reflect upon that time before grace came uh, by God's sovereign mercy. We can remember our former selves. We can peruse the diaries of our memories. We can cast our minds back upon the guilt that, uh, the guilt that we had, the power of sin that was over us, the condemnation that was due to us. But then we can again quickly fly to the reality that that guilt has been owned and cast away by Christ. The wrath and condemnation due to us has been taken upon the Lord Jesus Christ himself at the cross. He bore, uh, he bore the, our, our wrath due to us in that cross. Uh, on that cross, we can reflect upon the fact that that grace came to us by virtue of that perfect life of Christ, by virtue of that death of Christ, by virtue of the victorious resurrection uh, uh, from the dead by the Lord Jesus Christ, we have so much content for reflection as Christians. 
We have so much content for historical retrospect as Christians. We are just like these in the Psalms. We're just like David in the Psalms who cast his mind back upon the mercies of God and finds in them strength for his his soul, strength for his day, strength for his walk as a child of God. And that's what we have in the Lord's Supper. Generally speaking, we have this remembrance, which is simply to be the motion of the Christian heart. Ecclesiastes 12.1, remember now your creator in the days of your youth. You know, it is this remembrance, it is this motion of the Christian heart and mind and soul in, in remembrance that, uh, that is in view, or rather, our proneness not to perfectly engage in it is very often in view when the apostles come to write, write their letter. In fact, if you turn back to 1 Corinthians with me, you can turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. While remembrance is and should be the, the first motions of the Christian heart, the first motion of the Christian heart, and the continual motion, the natural motion of the redeemed heart, uh, very often we are prone to forget. Very often we are prone to wander and leave the God that we love. Notice 1 Corinthians 15. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now, and then, well, notice verse 3, for I delivered to you first of all that which I also received. So what do we see here? We see Paul, per- perhaps it's not the most clearest thing, the most clear thing, but we see here Paul preaching to them again, writing to them again, something which they had already received. Well, Paul, why... Why are you talking to us about this again? You, you told us, you know, the, the first time you declared it to us, we heard this stuff before. Well, what was happening in the context? Many were denying the resurrection of the dead. Many were being tempted to deny the resurrection of the dead, and in so doing then to, by implication, deny that Jesus Christ himself had been raised from the dead. And so because of that lack of remembrance because of the reality that things that should be the most remembered are often the most forgotten, he calls them back to a remembrance upon those things which beforehand they had been told. Uh, In fact, that's some language that we read in the the, the New Testament, in Jude, for example. Uh, He writes them some things, though they are things that they should have already known and that they had been told. Uh, we see the Apostle Paul also in his letter to the letters to the uh, the church in Thessalonica. Uh, I, I ask you or I call upon you to remember those things that I spoke to you while I was still with you. So remembrance is the stuff of it should, it is, and it should be the stuff of the natural motion of the Christian heart. But as well, remembrance is something that comes as an apostolic tool. It comes as a, uh, as a God-breathed tool to remind and to stir up that historical retrospect because we are so prone to forget. And so what does this have to do with the Lord's Supper? Well, the, the Lord's Supper, well, in part, given, that, given the fact that it is a remembrance of the once-for-all sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, given the reality that 
uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, in his institution of it, calls upon the remembrance uh, of his gathered disciples twice. We are to engage in um, a proper retrospect at the Lord's Supper, and it's given to us that we might retain the knowledge of Christ in our hearts. If we, can, if we can come down to one statement with regards to the remembrance aspect, or sorry, the giving of the Lord's Supper connected to remembrance, it's so that we might have another means whereby we might retain the King of Kings and Lord of Lords in our hearts. And this is why it's such a blessed thing to be able to gather for the breaking of bread, uh, for the pouring of wine, for gathering to met together as the communion of saints, as the body of Christ, to uh, eat, of his, eat of his body, as it were, and drink of his blood, as it were, in the taking of the elements and in the reflection upon the Lord Jesus Christ. What a beautiful thing we have. In remembrance, generally speaking, and though we have peppered this uh, remembrance, generally speaking, with the reality of Christ, thirdly, we want to hone in specifically on the language that we have, do this in remembrance of me. So we have do this, we have in remembrance, and now we have of me. It is a remembrance of Christ. We move from the general, the Christian general focus upon remembrance, the remembrances of God and his works, specifically to the remembrance of the Lord Jesus Christ and his. And first we want to note, we remember Christ at the Lord's Supper in his person. As we gather together for the Lord's Supper, we ought to reflect upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we take of the bread, as we drink of the cup, we're to remember Christ and, and who he is. He is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. We reflect upon his, his pre-incarnate glory, that's an interesting phrase because there, there is no before, during, and after with regards to the Son of God according to his divinity. But we speak of the pre-incarnate glory because from our time-bound vantage point, we can only speak that way. But the pre-incarnate glory of the Son of God, his pre-incarnate glory did not change in the incarnation. He does not have somehow a diminished post-incarnate glory but rather we reflect upon the fact that prior to the assumption of our nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof and yet without sin, we have those visions in the Bible, we have those visions in the scriptures of that glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And one that we oft ought to return to is that Isaiah 6 picture of the exalted Christ. Remember what we find in Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. If you ever stop to, to think about that language, the train of his robe filled the temple, many commentators believe that the vision that Isaiah had wasn't that he saw some entire, um, uh, some entire manifestation of God, a manifestation of the Lord Jesus Christ, where you could see this perhaps, um, you know, this, uh, th this uh, vision of a, of a kingly figure that was given as the manifestation of the glory, but that Isaiah only beheld uh, the hem of the robe of this exalted figure. The train of his robe filled the temple. It doesn't say that he in his majesty 
uh, set forth as a kingly figure filled the temple, but rather the hem of his robe. His, his immensity, his majesty, his glory is such that Isaiah only lays hold of the hem of a robe, and he sees these angels flying, crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole world is full of his glory. And, you know, they're, they're flying with reverence. They're, they're flying with two wings covering their eyes and two wings co- covering their feet and with two wings flying. But Isaiah sees this picture and we're, we're given the interpretation in John chapter 12 that this is the pre-incarnate Christ, where John writes that these things I, Isaiah wrote of when he saw the glory of Christ and spoke of him. What a a glorious picture we have there of the Lord Jesus Christ. This exalted one, holy, holy, holy. Yes, holy in the sense of an ethical perfection. Of course, God is sinless. And I I think we, we, we shouldn't actually even use the terminology of sinlessness with regards to God. It's a it's a word reserved for humanity and in the context of a of a required obedience. He's wholly other as well ethically perfect he's full, most holy and most righteous but he's also wholly other in the immensity of his singularity his the glory of his being the glory of his majesty he is this one that is exalted above the heavens the one that the the, the heaven of heavens cannot even contain and this is the Lord Jesus Christ prior to taking on our after taking on our flesh again before during and after Time-bound words that we can't ascribe to the one who is temporally eternal in his infinite majesty. But understand that in this pre-incarnate glory, we can lay our eyes upon, uh, with eyes of faith, upon this Isaiah 6 Christ, and therein find the, the king of the supper, the king of the Lord's supper, our blessed Savior who gave his life, having assumed our humanity for our redemption and for our recovery. And then our minds ought to quickly turn as we reflect upon the person of Christ at the Lord's Supper. Our minds can turn from the glory of his unrivaled divinity, his unmitigated divinity, and land upon that assumed humanity. That that assumed humanity wherein he comes to our lower shame in the assumption of our humanity to go about the world not as one championed by his fellows. Yes, the disciples but not as one championed by his kinsmen of Israel, but one who was despised, a man who was rejected, a man of, of grief, a man of sorrows. What a, what a startling thing it is to reflect upon so glorious a Christ, assuming, uh, assuming our, our humanity and coming to a place where his own don't receive him, the nation of Israel doesn't receive him, uh, the, as the, the evangelists say, the, the, the foxes have their holes, the birds of the air have their nests, but Jesus, in fact, says this, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You know, we think about that pre-incarnate picture, and then our eyes shift, eyes of faith, that is, shift to this picture of Christ in his assumed humanity, bearing those sorrows, bearing those griefs, bearing the... The, the tyranny of this lower world, bearing the opposition of this lower world, bearing the blasphemies of his enemies, bearing ultimately the beatings and the crucifying of his enemies. 
What a glorious thing we have in a reflection upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that reflection upon the person of Christ, our, our, our reflections ought to move to the work of Christ. You know, at, when we think about the, the study of Christ, and it's not a study like biology, it's not a study like chemistry, it's not a study like physics, physics it's highly exalted above those aspects and those subjects of study because it is the greatest study on the subject of the earth. The study of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ crucified upon the cross of Calvary. What a blessed study. But in that study of Christology, we cast our minds upon the person of Christ and we cast our minds upon the work of Christ. And in the Lord's Supper, it ought to be the same. We reflect upon the fact that he is very God, the fact that he is very man, yet one Christ and the only mediator, and then that work of mediation. This language, do this in remembrance of me, is to draw the Christian heart, is to draw the Christian mind, is to draw the Christian soul upon reflections of his life, death, and resurrection. So at the supper, I believe we ought to do this. Now at the supper, we don't have eight hours to reflect upon the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, that would be great. Um, but, uh, but in our reflections, as we take the bread, as we take the wine, and as there is time uh, before, uh, before following through that institution or that carrying out of the institution of the Lord's Supper by the minister of the gospel, as we're doing those things, our minds ought to be cast back on his person and on his work. And as we reflect upon his work, as we, as we traffic in reflections upon his life, what an, what an amazing thing if we think about his birth. You know, we, we just have, we're, we're Protestants, so we're not bound to any uh, liturgical calendar, but it just happens to be the case that through, throughout the year, there are certain times where we reflect upon things. For, for example, around, uh, around Easter with regards to the, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, his death and his his uh, resurrection, and around Christmas time we reflect upon his birth, and so the remembrance of the Christian upon the Lord Jesus Christ in his work, we ought to look back upon his birth. What what an amazing thing that we have if we reflect upon the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, specifically at that that frame in life, the birth, the the one who the one who fixed the stars in place is fixed upon the breast of a human mother. You know, the one who created the animals who, who feed out of feed troughs is found lying in a very feed trough that, that, he, himself, uh, that he himself created for, for the animals. What an amazing thing as we reflect upon the one who came into this life and remember who came into this world for us. When we, when we speak about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ into this lower world, let us never detach that from the reality that he did that for us. He did that for the glory of his Father, for the vindication of the holiness and the, the glory, the justice, the love of God the Father, the triune God, as a, uh, uh, the triune God, and also he did it for us. What is his life but a perfect life of obedience from, from cradle to grave in a substitutionary rendering for all those whom the Father had given to him? He, he lived in our place. He died in our place. As we, as we move from the birth, we, we look upon the, the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ. And think about, think about the baptism for a moment. There's, there's, wonderful, there's a, a wonderful picture there of 
if I can use the language, and I will, submission on the part of the Lord Jesus Christ to the will of the Father in going into the waters of baptism. Because remember, John the Baptist says, you know, Lord, far be it for me to, to baptize you. you. You know, you should be baptizing me. The Lord Jesus Christ says, let it be so that all righteousness may be fulfilled. And he goes into the water. He's baptized not for the forgiveness of sins because he is wholly harmless and undefiled, but in order that he might fulfill all righteousness. He's inaugurating, in a sense, though it had obtained before, he's inaugurating his earthly ministry, his public earthly ministry in the rendering of righteousness to the law and the covenant of God. Spurgeon has wonderful language at this point. He uses the language of personifying the water of the Jordan. And he says something like, uh, something like, uh, we have reason to suspect that the conscious water trembled at the knowledge that it contained the deity. As Christ is being baptized in the water, of course, water can't contain the deity, nothing can, but by virtue of the hypostatic union, by virtue of the union in the two natures in the one person, Spurgeon can reflect and say, the waters of the Jordan themselves trembled at the fact that they contained the deity. Christ in his life, Christ in his work, we cast our, our, our minds upon his doing, and then we cast our minds upon his dying. And in fact, the Lord's Supper itself, while we ought never to exclude everything that preceded his cross work, it hones in or it brings the Christian mind into focus specifically upon that, my body my blood, his body broken, his blood shed for us. So we are to remember Christ specifically in his work culminating in his death. Our confession in chapter 30, paragraph 1, reads with this language, perpetual, that the Lord's Supper is a perpetual remembrance and showing forth of the sacrifice of himself in his death. And then, in paragraph two, a memorial of that one offering up of himself by himself upon the cross. So as we come as Christians to reflections uh, upon the Lord's Supper, at the Lord, uh, reflections upon the death of Christ at the Lord's Supper, it is a reflection upon his death. And I want us to draw our attention to two remembrances. You can turn to Hebrews 10 with me. Hebrews chapter 10. Because in in exalting the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul, in the book of Hebrews, or whomever you think wrote the book of Hebrews, but Paul, in the book of Hebrews, um, engages in a comparison between two remembrances. There is a typical remembrance that obtained in the life of Israel prior to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then there is this antitypical reflection in remembrance prior or, or following the advent uh, of the Lord uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice uh, notice in Hebrews chapter 10 beginning at verse 5. Uh, well, actually, you know what, let's just, let's just begin reading at verse 1. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, that's those, the Old Testament sacrifices that were still going on uh, uh, at the writing of the book of Hebrews, which they offer continually, year by year, make those who uh, approach perfect. 
For then how would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers once purified would have, uh, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. There's a reminder of sins every year. So in those sacrifices, you see, there wasn't, there wasn't to be in, in, the, in the mind of the Israelites with those sacrifices um, a, a reminder of a once-for-all sacrifice. They typically pointed forward to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But there is this remembrance of sins. It is not possible, the text says, that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. So there is this perpetual remembrance of sins, but the contrast comes later. The contrast comes at the end of, uh, at the end, well, near the middle of chapter 10 of the book of Hebrews, and notice in verse 19. Well, actually, prior to that, we'll, we'll, we'll pick up reading in verse 19, but prior to that, there's this reminder of the new covenant announcements, and of course, its fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice uh, backing up at verse 11, and every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same fat sacrifice, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool for by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. We have these two remembrances then, that old covenant remembrance, which was a reminder of sins, and this new covenant remembrance now, which reflects upon and remembers the, the remission of sins, that we don't have this continual sacrifice being offered, but now only the remembrance of a once-for-all sacrifice having been rendered and joyful reflections upon the fact that the guilt of sin has been dealt with, that the condemnation for sin has been dealt with, and that the power over us that sin had has been dealt with in the person and in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a wonderful thing. Gill on what is remembered at the Lord's Supper. It may be observed that the Lord's Supper, which is a feast, is a commemoration of the ratification of the covenant of grace by the blood of Christ and wherein and whereby the faith of God's people is strengthened and confirmed as to their interest in it. As we'll note here in a moment, we'll, we see that the Lord's Supper is not only a commemoration and a remembrance, but it is an occasion whereby the faith of God's people, as Gill said, is strengthened and confirmed as to their interest in it. And as we move to our last point, I want to close the point of remembrance with this quote by C.H. Spurgeon. He talks about the, he talks about the fact that we, we cannot, as Christians, exhaust the language, uh, exhaust language concerning the glory of Christ overall, as well, uh, but specifically to do with the shedding of his blood and what that, what that did, what that means, what that is. We know those blessed propositions concerning it, that we are saved perfectly and have the forgiveness of sins by it, but there is such a greatness to the sacrifice of Christ. And so Spurgeon preached, Oh, had I eloquence, I would bestow a tongue on every drop of blood that is there, that your hearts might rise in mutiny against your languor and coldness and speak out with earnest burning remembrance of Jesus." We ought to pray 
that we would never have hearts of, uh, of mutiny, these, these hearts of languor and coldness, rather, that we approach the Lord's Supper with, with sort of a, a, a religious roteness, that on, you know, on those occasions where we just happen to be observing it, uh, we're engaging it perhaps as just going through religious motions. Again, if I had eloquence, I would bestow a tongue on every drop of blood that is there that your hearts might rise in mutiny against your languor and coldness and speak out with earnest burning remembrance of Jesus. This is what we ought to have as, as Christians, an earnest burning remembrance of the Lord Christ. Well, let's move towards closing in our last point here that the joyful responsibility of the Lord's Supper is seen in its character as a means of grace. Its character as a means of grace. What do we mean by this? We, we do not mean that it, by engaging in the Lord's Supper that we merit the grace of God, that somehow that, that is possible in any respect. When we talk about something being a means of grace, for example, the preaching of the word is a means of grace, um, prayer is a means of grace. Baptism and Lord's Supper are means of grace. This is a, a helpful definition of uh, the Lord's Supper as a means of grace by Richard Barcelos. The Lord's Supper is a means of grace at which Christ is present by his divine nature and during which the Holy Spirit nourishes the souls of believers with the benefits wrought for us in Christ's humanity which is now glorified and in heaven at the right hand of the Father. So we have in, a means of grace is where the exalted Christ, having been exalted by virtue of his mediatorial victories, having been exalted by virtue of his mediatorial conquerings, having perfected the law of God in perfect obedience to it in our stead, having died as a, as a sacrifice, a substitutionary sacrifice, a perfect one, in our stead, and having been raised the third day, 40 days after he ascends into heaven, and he's given, he's given all authority in heaven and on earth, and he, from that vantage point, present in his divinity, sends forth his spirit, ministering to the souls of believers by engaging in this ordinance. The Holy Spirit nourishes the souls of believers with the benefits wrought for us in Christ's humanity. Our, our confession reads this way with regards to, a, I think, a helpful definition of what it is to, to be or what, it, what a means of grace is. Again, we don't by activity merit the grace of God. The elements themselves, the bread and the blood, don't convey grace, but there is grace and nourishment conveyed. The grace of faith, this is chapter 14, 1, the grace of faith whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts and is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the word by which also and by the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper, prayer and other means appointed of God, it is increased and strengthened. Those, those other means appointed of God are brought out in in chapter 22, one of which is, is fastings, occasional fastings. So the Lord's Supper is such that the faith uh, of the elect were enabled to believe um, uh, unto the saving of our souls by the grace of faith. And then the Lord's Supper is part of this work of the Spirit in our hearts, 
wrought um, through, or the Lord's Supper is the Holy Spirit working in our, heart, our, in our hearts. So that grace of faith is nourished. That grace of faith in believing, our, our faith is nourished by the Holy Spirit in the engagement of a number of these elements of worship, but for our point this morning, the Lord's Supper. So what a, what a thing then it is and should be to remember it. Not just in the fact that it is and serves as a remembrance, but by virtue of the fact that it is also a means of grace, whereby at that table, the risen and exalted Christ feeds us by his spirit and nourishes our souls. And in fact, there is a, there's an intimate connection between, uh, if we find our way back to 1 Corinthians 11, there's an intimate connection between the bread and the wine and the spiritual nourishment that we gain in participating in the Lord's Supper. The language of verse 24 and 25, remember, is again, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now we ought to stress the symbology of it. It's not, it's not literally his body, nor is it literally the new covenant. Um, nor is his blood literally the new covenant. However, we ought, to, we ought not to be so much opposed to perhaps Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox and Lutheran excesses that we cast off the reality that the Spirit does feed us at the Lord's Supper and nourishes us in our faith. This is our confession in paragraph 30 at uh, excuse me, chapter 30 at paragraph 7. After already stating that be uh, believers gain spiritual nourishment and growth in Christ at the supper, it reads, worthy receivers, outwardly partaking of the visible elements in this ordinance, do then also inwardly by faith, really and indeed, yet not carnally and corporally, but spiritually receive and feed upon Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death. The body and blood of Christ being then not corporally or carnally, but spiritually present to the faith of believers in that ordinance as the elements themselves are to the outward senses. So you see, just as the, the, the bread and the blood is to our outward senses physical nourishment and we nourish on those things, so too, spiritually, we receive and feed upon Christ crucified and the benefits of his death in engaging in the Lord's Supper. So as we eat of the bread and drink of the wine, we are not simply to do that, but at the same time, we are to reflect in remembrance upon so glorious a Christ and to realize that at that selfsame moment, that same exalted Christ is feeding us by his spirit, giving us measures of growth and grace and in the grace of faith. Where do we see something of this in the context of 1 Corinthians 11? We see it in 1 Corinthians 10. Notice in 1 Corinthians 10, beginning at verse 14. We'll, we'll note this, and then we'll have uh, just three brief things in closing. Notice in 1 Corinthians 10, 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body. 
for we all partake of that one bread. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What am I saying then? That an idol is anything, or what is offered to idols is anything? Rather, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So what's going on here is that the Apostle Paul is setting in opposition communion with demons to communion with the Most High God, communion with the body and blood of Christ. Communion with God is set against communion with demons. We are, it, we are on the one side, of course, not to participate in, in you know, pagan, idolatrous meals that are sacrificing and offering up to demons, thereby, thereby having communion with those demons, but we are, on the other hand, by virtue of engaging in the Lord's Supper, this context which follows, we are to engage in communion with God by virtue of our participation in the Lord's Supper. So it's not only a remembrance, though it is that and a glorious one, it is a remembrance or an ordinance or sacrament of remembrance whereby we also have communion with the triune God by virtue of the perfection of Jesus Christ, our Savior. So let us remember that the Lord's Supper itself is a command. It's a divine command that we as Christians joyfully embrace and participate in. It is a remembrance, and that remembrance is something that, remembrance, generally speaking, is something that ought to be the constant motion of the, of the Christian heart. It is the, the constant inhalings if you can pluralize inhale, it is the constant inhalings of the things of Christ, the glories of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our breathing as Christians is the breath of remembrance, reflecting upon the doing and the dying and the rising again of the Son of God. And we are, of course, in that remembrance to remember Christ, do this in remembrance of me, he says, and then in participating in the Lord's Supper, we recognize that thereby our souls are nourished by the risen Christ through the work and power of the Holy Spirit. So two minutes and 37 seconds in closing. The first thing that we ought to recognize is that we are to obey Christ. And what a, what a glorious one to obey. Remember, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. The Lord Jesus Christ doesn't come to us as a tyrannical king who has enslaved men and women, boys and girls, to engage in the drudgery of slavish obedience, but he is our savior, our glorious king of kings, our glorious redeemer who has brought us from out of the mire of the pit. He's brought us from, from out of the, the rock of deadness and sin to life and light in Jesus Christ, and thereby, having been made alive by victorious and amazing grace, we obey those glorious commands of his, and what a command it is to obey, to gather together as the saints and soldiers of Christ, to feed upon nourishments of the Spirit, to reflect upon the Lord Jesus Christ, his dyings, uh, his, his doings and his dying, and to reflect upon so glorious a person and a work. We remember so glorious a one, so 
uh, so majestic a one as we gather together for the Lord's Supper. Let us always receive well those occasions where we are called as Christians to gather and to remember and to reflect upon so wonderful a Savior and be nourished by Christ. When, when you, to go back to the, to the language of, uh, of Hansard, uh, our brother of the 17th century, we should never cry, oh my leanness and oh my barrenness, as if we're asking why we're lean and barren if we absent ourselves from the means of grace. If, our, if we don't come to church, if we don't pray, if we don't observe the Lord's Supper, we should never say, why am I struggling spiritually? While Christianity and our, our relationship with, our, our connection to God isn't formulaic in the way of pagan religion, there nevertheless is a connection to our attendance to the means of grace and our spiritual vitality. So we are to come, uh, we are come to come to church and avail of the preaching of the word, of prayer, of the singing of hymns and psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And whenever the Lord's Supper is administered in this church, in any church, Christ's people are to come, to obey, to remember, and to be nourished. And if you're here this morning and you're outside of Christ, your, your first motion is not to ask if you can take the Lord's Supper. Your f- first motion is to act, it isn't to ask what command can I obey in order to be a Christian? There is no command that you can obey in order to become a Christian. There is only the reality that you are to rest upon the Lord Jesus Christ. You are to believe upon the Savior, the King of Kings. You are to reflect upon the fact, you are to engage in a remembrance that you have sinned against so holy and so righteous a God you are deserving of, of wrath and condemnation, not only in this, this world, but in the life that is to come eternally. And you are to cast then your soul upon the glorious Christ, upon the one who perfectly secured the multitude of, uh, the, the, the salvation of a multitude that no man can number by his doing and his dying and his rising again. What a savior we have to remember. What a savior we have to be nourished by. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Jesus Christ, our Lord. We thank you for the word of God. We thank you for for the fact that we can reflect with great joy upon the doing and dying and rising again of Christ, our precious Savior. Help us to always have minds that uh, are cast upon these glories, these riches, these excellencies. Help us as Christians to attend to the means of grace that we might be nourished thereby, by the risen Christ, through the given Spirit. And we do pray that you'd help us as we uh, go forth into the rest of this Lord's Day. Help us to continue engaging in reflection upon our God and his Christ. And we do pray, Lord God, that by this word preached, you would edify your saints and that you would save sinners and that it would all be to the praise of your glorious grace. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our